Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Riverside, California. Welcome to the show, Aaron Norris. Hi, nice to be here. Great to have you here. So Aaron, you've been working on purpose-built rentals in Southwest Florida, but before we jump into that, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Sure. I started uh, flipping houses with my dad in the early 80s for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> I got into the arts in, in New York City, so I spent my 20s out there and fell into Wall Street doing acquisition and merger presentation between gigs. And I really enjoyed the data side of it. Long story short, came to work with a family business and hard money in the flipping business as well. And met Sean O'Toole with Property Radar and have always wanted to work in technology. So in 2020, I'm working with him and then do my own thing on the side, my own investment portfolio. And part of my, my gig is speaking with investors nationwide, exploring off-market opportunities and how to use data better in their business. I love that. There's very few people that have somehow managed to navigate between that great divide of Wall Street versus Main Street, because they're two completely different worlds. And I've spent a little bit of time, not directly on Wall Street, although my family was connected with it. My uncle owned a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So I kind of came from that world. And I today hold almost no stock in public companies, and I'm firmly on Main Street. And it sounds like you are as well. I'm a staunch advocate of Main Street. Small business and real estate changed my family's picture for, for generations. And I've met some of the most incredible people nationwide. And yeah, I'm really passionate about helping Main Street not be scared of Wall Street and how we uniquely compete. Because I don't think it's good to have only Wall Street in the real estate space. There's opportunity for everyone. And it's just understanding the games, not the games, but the business models of what Wall Street is doing and what they're not and where Main Street fits in at the local level. Now, you work with a lot of investors, I'll say mom and pop type investors that aren't necessarily the professional real estate investors, but the strategies that work when they work, work at any level. doesn't matter whether you're doing one unit or a thousand. The math is pretty much the same. What is it that you're seeing in the marketplace that, where's the tension in the marketplace that you're seeing that when people are just trying to get into the game or just trying to, to make something that work and it feels forced, why is it not working? From the beginner perspective, I talk to a lot of people that want to get into the real estate space and they just don't know where to start and they get very overwhelmed just because they don't, they may go on the internet, start watching a lot of podcasts and uh, maybe attending their local investor club and they get introduced to a lot of different ways to do the business. And it's, it's very easy to get distracted and try to be everything and they forget who they bring to the party. So strategies, in my opinion, are very based on who you bring to the party. If you're an extrovert, You'll do things like door knocking and make those personal connections where if you're an introvert with a lot of time and you're very analytical, you're more systems-based and you like creating projects from scratch and you're probably really good at development. I love just chatting with people to find out you know, who they are and start chatting about the different strategies that they might really get passionate about and geek out on and have a lot more success faster in the business. So someone might be listening to this and say, well, I'm good in construction, so I'm going to go rehab houses. But at the end of the day, these are all businesses that have to stand alone from end to end, from cradle to grave. And they need all of the skills, not just that one technical skill. They need the ability to raise capital. They need the ability to market, the ability to sell, the ability to manage money and transact. All of those things are necessary. It doesn't, I don't care what the business is. 
what's the limiting factor that you see people running into? Is it that they're just trying to put a square peg in a round hole or is it because they're actually missing some of those critical skills? A little bit of both for sure. And when you're missing some of those critical skills, some of those critical skills are very dependent on the strategy. So if you're doing development and then you're getting distracted by some other things, like you want to buy existing inventory and flip it, it's adjacent, but it's not the same model. And it takes a different built skill set when you're working a lot more with a local building department and you're understanding ground up construction and constraints on times because cities and COVID and supply chain disruption. Unfortunately, I know <laughs> way too much about these days, building new houses myself. And then Wall Street, some of the activity they've raised over a billion dollars to go after specific asset classes, thinking they were going to go after distress. And that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. It doesn't mean that it can't with the national moratorium. And then you've got state moratoriums on things like eviction and foreclosures. It's anyway, it, you've got a lot of money chasing yield, which is really hard. Main Street, that's a conversation I have a lot, especially in the single family investor space right now. So it'll be interesting to see how they deploy that capital if they start chasing multifamily because they just use it or lose it, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. So you're based in Riverside, California, and you're working three time zones away, uh, still along the south end of the country in southwest Florida. What, what attracted you to that particular area? Just migration trends, just being able to buy houses for pretty a straight a, Selling a single family house that I bought for 200, selling it for 400 and getting the same rents on the other side, just brand new inventory and attracting a very different tenant. So that was a very personal decision. We work with people all over the country and I just learned that I like to be a landlord. Building single family for me works great and it's what I've got time for and I'm tired of heavy rehabs on rentals. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have a lot more Wall Street money chasing that. It's, it's very difficult to deploy just hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, safely. So you've got the iBuyer model, you've got the built to rent, distressed debt that these Wall Street companies can go after. I've seen a few Wall Street companies looking at building out entire neighborhoods with the build to rent model with a lot more density. I'm just watching some trends. The working from home, is that here to stay? Did we get really spoiled and decide that if the job says, yeah, we need you to come back wherever they move, they're like, you know what? I'm gonna stay put, I'm gonna find a new job locally. It's going to be very interesting to see as the vaccine rolls out some habits from the consumers, what they decide to do long-term. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I certainly see is that there is a significant amount of demand in the marketplace for a rental product, but people grew up living in a house. I mean, the erosion of the middle class is real. It's not just imagined. And there are a lot of folks that their parents may have had three or $5,000 of student debt, and the next generation, they're sitting on 40000 or 60000 of student debt. By the time they've got that cleared off and are ready to buy a house, they're in their late 30s, early 40s. If they become a first-time homeowner or a homeowner at all, they may be lifelong tenants, but they still want to live in a place that lives like a house. So they don't want to necessarily be in a rental complex or in a fourplex they want a property that lives like a house, what they're used to. So I think there's a tremendous amount of demand for rental housing, purpose-built, that is really geared towards satisfying that unmet need in the marketplace. Yeah, you're going to have a lot more Wall Street money chasing that. It's, it's very difficult to deploy just hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, safely. So you've got the iBuyer model, you've got the built-to-rent, distressed debt that these Wall Street companies can go after. Um, I've seen a few Wall Street companies looking at building out entire neighborhoods with the build to rent model 
um, with a lot more density. I'm just watching some trends. You know, the working from home, is that here to stay? Did we get really spoiled and decide that if the job says, yeah, we need you to come back wherever they move, they're like, you know what? I'm going to stay put. I'm going to find a new job locally. It's going to be very interesting to see as the vaccine rolls out some habits from the consumers, what they decide to do long-term. Absolutely. I mean, if you think back when I was in university, how many people did I know that had a home office? Like hardly any. And today, even pre-pandemic, I would have said, my gosh, I know hundreds. And now, of course, into the pandemic and probably post-pandemic, it's almost the majority. So I think the pandemic has proven to be a bit of an accelerator of a trend that was already well underway. And houses, the design of houses really haven't adapted to that shifting need. I mean, how many houses do you know that are designed with a real honest-to-goodness workspace? Not for one person, but two. Or not only that, you've got school from home. So we might have kids going to school remotely here on out. It, it's going to be interesting to watch. And I think in the commercial space, there will definitely be some opportunity. Listen, I, I shared with you before we started taping, my favorite roommate is from Ottawa, Canada, where you're based. I lived in New York City for seven years. And I grew up in suburbia my entire K-12 through experience. So I, I just don't think those... I really enjoy the urban experience. I don't think it's going to go away. I think there's fear. I think maybe some people who are maybe baby boomers who just don't want to mess up everything that they've earned over time are going to make some decisions. And for those that are understand that it's important to focus on fear and buy when people are fearful, you might have some really interesting opportunity in some of the best cities in the world. LA, Chicago, San Francisco, New York. I think there are definitely, I've had some very interesting conversations. I'll just say that in the commercial space over the last month. I think there are absolutely some opportunities in the short to medium term. There's no question about it. But let's face it. I mean, if you go back a year and let's say your salary was 100000 a year and you lived in Manhattan, you probably had a roommate because that's all you can afford. True. Very true. And in the residential space in, in the Manhattan, they got really busy developing a lot of very high dollar. I used to live in Hell's Kitchen there. Didn't When I lived there, it was a four-story, five-story walk-up. I was on the fourth floor. I was renting from a renter of a subletter. <laughs> that was interesting. And I was across the street from, I think it's the Hudson Yards area now. At the time, it was affordable housing. <laughs> so it's a very different experience. There's just some different opportunity based on the price point. They've certainly been focused on the high-end stuff, but that affordable space and this, there's just the affordable housing conversation is a really interesting one. In California, you've got the state, counties, and the cities trying to create a lot of different opportunity on the development, bonus density combined with opportunity zones. Having that real local knowledge could really be of benefit if you know what you're doing. I've been working with some media talking about that, things that are getting upzoned where it's R3 lot and it's got a single family home on it right now. So scraping that, building up to an eightplex on that site. <laughs> so uh, it's a, I think it's a, an exciting time probably to be a developer if you really know what you're doing. Yeah, I feel, absolutely feel the same way. I mean, we're seeing opportunities ourselves that even five years ago, we would have said were impossible. We see communities that have been resistant to intensification, realizing that it's necessary, something that they need to improve their tax base in order to create affordability. Because at the end of the day, if your cost is X dollars per square foot for the land and your construction cost is, you know, whatever it is per square foot, it doesn't matter who the owner is. It doesn't matter if it's owner-occupied or if it's owned by a landlord. It costs what it costs to build the thing. 
And unless you get past that, the question of affordability becomes a bit of a, an academic discussion. So unless you can lower the land cost, unless you can create the incentives that make it possible to, to have affordable housing, I mean, look, developers would love to build affordable housing if they could. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, the conversation that California has been having for decades. And one of my favorite, the chief economist for the National Association of Home Builders, I asked him because they in 2016, they did a study of the average government cost of new housing. And depending where you are, it goes up and down. And I asked him, does this include lawsuits, sequel lawsuits, as well as the community development angle on the public relations side, building community support for projects? And he said, no. I'm like, then that's not the number, <laughs> especially in the, on the redevelopment side or when you're building big projects. Some of those things can just take years. Uh, if not a decade. I've followed a project that certainly took over a decade where 90% of the land was given to land conservancy here in California. So I don't know how people hold on that long. That is a hard entitlement process. That would scare me. You have to have deep pockets to be able to do that. But I think one opportunity for the commercial side is the people side right now, especially in states like California with the eviction moratoriums. Somebody who's just on the verge of retiring and they've got these commercial complexes and just they're just wanting to throw up their hands and get out. Maybe they own free and clear and you're a developer who really knows how to manage that process and get through it and you've got the bandwidth to handle that. That can alone can be some really exciting opportunity. There's no question if you talk about assemblage of land, in particular for residential, repurposing land that was previously commercial into residential land, I think is one of the latent opportunities in the marketplace. There's a lot of dead shopping malls they're not coming back as shopping malls. You know, that anchor store that used to be a Sears, it's not going to be all of a sudden a Nordstrom's. I mean, it's just not happening. So what do you do with that? And it's not going to become an Amazon fulfillment center either. So what do you do with that land? It's a unique opportunity to repurpose that land and do something for the community that's going to be maybe mixed use, maybe pure residential, but you're not going to assemble that kind of acreage in the core of the city any other way. I'm glad you brought this up. I've been following that trend for several years now. And just because I live in a suburban market, I would really hate to see our main mall become strictly an Amazon distribution center. I would hate that. So I think there is really important opportunity for developers who really have the vision. And I think it takes that local knowledge of working with the planning commission in the city and really understanding their vision. That certainly is going to get very political in some cities specifically that are dealing with affordable housing issues. So you just really have to know that. And I think that's what Wall Street won't want to play with is the political side because it can really slow you down. So that local knowledge is so cool. I did have a meeting last year, though, in one of the Southwest Florida markets where they asked me the opposite. They wanted to turn residential. They wanted to find an a, a assemblage specialist that could assemble these lots that have been owned for decades and they wanted to turn them into commercial. And it's on nobody's radar because <laughs> they haven't made that public yet. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and take a guess that you're talking about the community of Cape Coral. Am I? No, no? Okay. it's not. A, a city close by, but I think one that's even more exciting. They really wanted to pull some of these together and do bigger commercial projects. And unfortunately, they just thought they wanted more density on the housing side for sure, but they wanted to convert some of that residential. And the problem was they just needed somebody to come in and assemble all those together so they could create good blocks along major corridors. Very interesting. I, I know that many of those communities in Southwest Florida focused a lot on residential development. I brought up Cape Coral as an example. And the thing they forgot to build in was the amenities that the community needed. You have to drive sometimes five miles to find a restaurant. 
that's a problem. You don't build vibrant, sustainable communities that way if it's purely a bedroom community. So definitely seeing that that factor at play. But I think in a lot of cases, more mature communities, you, you almost have the opposite problem. You've got commercial that's overbuilt. Uh, I certainly, even in my own market of Ottawa, Canada, I look at the amount of commercial that's been built and I look at the malls that are 30 years old and I say, there's no way these malls are going to survive. There's, there's no chance. It's just overbuilt. So there's going to be a day of reckoning for for a lot of that, especially some of these older ones. And some of the big developers, some of the large REITs have come in and they bought up some of the older shopping malls in the in the core of the city. And they've taken the parking lot and they're putting a 20-story tower in the middle of the parking lot. And the cities probably really want that because they don't want it to turn just into a distribution center. So they're looking for those kind of opportunities. And I think COVID has really forced their hand in the conversation they need some revenue. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do with all these malls. Yeah, I love it. So Aaron, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? You can go to propertyradar.com for you developers. Property Radar is nationwide. We've got property people and mortgage data. So you're looking for those hyper-local opportunities. We can probably find you some very interesting opportunities at the local level, depending on your niche. So lots of fun stuff there. And if you ever get lost, community.propertyradar.com. You can post questions and we've got some very smart people that are willing to respond to questions if you get lost in the data. Well, take a minute and let's introduce Property Radar because I know you provide some services that are a little bit unique in the market that are not necessarily run of the mill. So maybe describe a little bit for the listeners what it is that you specialize in. Yeah, Property Radar is really for property-centric businesses that need a consistent source of leads. So developers, real estate investors, mortgage, realtors, you name it. And it's just, they bring the niche, we call that the chocolate, we match it with the peanut butter, which is the data. So having over 200 fields on the demographic side, the mortgage side, distress side, as well as the property side, you'd be really surprised to see from mobile home parks to industrial, commercial, there's just so much interesting data there. And then being able to find the people behind those, finding if it's free and clear, how old the owner is, just some really interesting opportunities. So that's what we do. And we've been doing it for quite some time. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the insights, Aaron. For the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Aaron at propertyradar.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.